the internet and the rest of the telecommunications infrastructure that has been built out in the last 50 years, and especially the last 25, is a new condition from which we cannot easily recover. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Kurt Anderson is a best-selling novelist, public radio host, and acclaimed cultural critic. In today's episode, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History, he and journalist Jeffrey Goldberg explore America's unique history of credulity, our collective tendency to be too ready to believe something is true or real. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other programs presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Has the great American experiment in liberty gone off the rails? Anderson's book is a provocative chronicle of magical thinking and make-believe. It provides a new paradigm for understanding the post-factual present, where reality and illusion are dangerously blurred. In today's show, he and Jeffrey Goldberg discuss the role religion plays in America's roots and worldview. Anderson says history shows Americans have a peculiar knack for believing the unbelievable, for being suckers for those who want to sucker them. Goldberg is an award-winning journalist and the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Here's Goldberg. So uh, I, we'll jump right into this, but I just, I'll just i say a couple of words about Kurt. Um, I don't go back as far as Walter goes back uh, with Kurt, but I go back pretty far. He was my first magazine editor. Everything I've learned about magazine editing, I've learned from him, so The Atlantic is in trouble. Um, the, uh, and, and, and Kurt, as you know, I mean, a lot of you have seen Kurt here in years past, um, uh, found, co-founder of Spy Magazine, editor of New York Magazine, where I met him and worked for him, best-selling novelist, radio host, all-around social and political commentator. We're, we're doing fine, sure. right? That's enough. Um, the, uh, husband, father. Husband, father, American patriot. Yes. Uh, we'll get to that, actually, the American patriot question. Okay. And, and, and he's written a fantastic uh, new book that will be out shortly called Fantasyland. You saw the name on the program. I'm going to let you take us through a little bit of, of what you've discovered. I read it practically in one gulp, the galleys of it. It's a, it's a fascinating alternative history or secret history of, of the American experiment seen through the prism of our apparent willingness to believe fantastical things, um, the upside of that and the downside uh, of that. But why don't, why don't we start, just if you take a couple of minutes and you know, boil your entire life's work down into a couple of uh, finely honed paragraphs uh, and tell us the, the central thesis of, of what you're trying to accomplish with this book. Um, yeah, I began with a couple, several smaller ideas. I've been fascinated for years why, for instance, the United States, people in the United States are so much more religious and flamboyantly religious than the people of any other country in the developed world. That always interested me. And, and, and I read the scholarship on that, and it was only partially satisfying. That was one of the ideas that I began with. An another idea, frankly, that I began with, or another inspiration now 13 years ago, was on the first episode of the Colbert Report. Stephen Colbert, in character as a populist right-winger, comes out and, and, and does this extraordinary uh, essay about truthiness. 
and, 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 and that truthiness has replaced facts. And who needs a book when I know it in my gut? And, and it, was an it was his literally his first episode. And I thought, wow, he is really on to something. And, and, the, and, and I'd written about uh, uh, creationism. I'd written about the sort of how the presidency and politics had turned into show business. I decided I would try to bring this all together, and I thought, oh, this will be a history of the last 20, 30 years. Then I realized, no, it's history since the 60s, because for me, the 60s are a time when was a kind of big bang moment when uh, everybody could believe whatever they wanted if they were an American, and that was their right as an American, that everybody was entitled to their own facts as well as their own opinions, in the words of Daniel Moynihan. But then I realized, no, as I began researching and thinking, uh, it goes back all the way. It goes back to the pilgrims and to the gold hunters in Virginia, who were respectively a religious cult, the most extreme zealots of a zealous new sect of a new religion, that is Protestantism, and uh, the gold hunters who hunted for gold where there was none in Virginia for 20 years before they decided to face facts and uh, grow tobacco. I call it a 500-year history. There's the cover, because I have to go back to Martin Luther, who, by the way, 500 years ago, like today, essentially, October, actually, uh, nailed his theses on the door in uh, Germany. Because it's, it's a kind of extreme version of Protestantism, an extreme version of money love, an extreme version of entrepreneurialism, uh, an extreme version of show business, an extreme version of a lot of things that do make America, have made America exceptional in the meaning of good. Exceptional means good as well as peculiar. This is more a history of this, as Jeffrey said, this, this peculiar knack that Americans have always had for believing the unbelievable, for being true believers of religious uh, ideas and supernatural ideas, for being suckers for those who want to sucker them. Um, after all, the New World was this blank thing that was the subject of the first great advertising campaign by the English people who wanted, to, who wanted humans to populate these colonies. So talk about that for a second, because one of the fascinating things is that one of your theses is that the Europeans who came here were people who were already predisposed to believe uh, ungrounded promises in right. the future. Talk, talk about that no, in, it in was, the advertising sense of it. It was, it, again, and, and I'm not the first to note this, uh, historians like Daniel Borstein, the great Daniel Borstein, had noted this, that, that the, the English people in particular who were persuaded to give up their lives, give up everything, everyone they knew, uh, uh, to come to this blank place that had been pitched to them as utopia, and in some cases as as Eden itself, that was, that was a, a belief in the 16th and 17th century, uh, they self-selected. We, the original Americans, self-selected, the original white Americans, self-selected for uh, credulity and, and, and kept doing so. And you've shared with me some stories um, uh, about later immigrants uh, who, who that, that it is often, yes, it's the, it's the believers in, in greatness and I can make myself and I can reimagine myself and I can get rich and I can be free, all those good things, but it's also, uh, it has self-selected for suckers. So America is a country of the grifted and the grifter. They have to, they can't have a country with one without the other in a kind of way. And I'm not introducing the obvious name to this conversation for as long as possible, but right. we're, gonna, right. we're gonna get there because you start, no, because you started this book 
before. Uh, I finished this book before the current president was nominated. Yes. Thank you for not saying his name. Now yes. it's sort of fruitless, yes. but whatever. Uh, the, Voldemort. Uh, Let's just call him Voldemort. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I'm not doing that. You can do that. Um, the, but but stay, stay on the religious piece for a minute. I, the, I read this book as a very anti-religion book. Do you agree with that, that, that this is a book that basically says that, that religion has caused Americans to do all kinds of stupid things over the years? I think that extreme Protestantism, and you will note that I scruple carefully between extreme Protestantism and what I grew up with, mainline Protestantism, between extreme Protestantism and Catholicism and Judaism. Extreme Protestantism, uh, along with extreme enlightenment belief and extreme a lot of things, but but yes, that that form of 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 uh, religious extremism uh, and the credulity that it requires and produces is part of the problem. Yeah. So another part of your argument is that we have, even though we are unusually susceptible to fantastical beliefs, and of course one of the arguments you make in this book is that America is a fountain of new religions. I mean, and, and Joseph, fountain. Joseph Smith might be the ultimate American in the, in, uh, refracted through the prism of your thesis, but you, you, you argue in this book that the haywire piece of it is relatively recent, I mean, that, that we've lived in balance between being grounded and then having sets of fantastical beliefs about the endless possibilities of the future. So, so walk us through that moment when we went from balance to imbalance, and then, yes, please take us to the moment when the country elected a, a president who has a record. I, I'm trying to want to stick strictly to the facts here, obviously. A, a record of extreme salesmanship. I'm looking for a way you're, to... You're being way too charitable. Yeah, no, I'm trying to be fair and balanced, yeah, obviously. Yeah. No, 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 but, 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 but a, a, a classic American yeah. Harold Hill kind of archetype. A Barnum. A Barnum, a yeah, Barnum, yeah. who you use in there. But take us through the, yeah. take us through the balance to the imbalance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what truly made America great was the, the tradition of, of show me, uh, 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 skepticism, Yankee practicality, all those things uh, in combination with larger-than-life dreams and reinvention. And, and they always existed in, in, in a kind of dynamic equilibrium for hundreds of years. Well, always. Yeah, I would say always. I was going to make some exceptions for right at the beginning, but always. Uh, and, and certainly through the 18th century, and, and, and speaking of the 18th century, at the end of the 18th century, of course, we created a constitution which tried to codify that equilibrium in ways like the Senate versus the House and the Electoral College versus popular vote. Do you think the founders were aware of our, our innate or organic American ability um, to lose our composure, to lose our balance? Or was it a specifically, was, was their analysis specifically American, or were they just the, the understanding of flawed human nature? They were inventing Republican democracy, and so they understood how democracy, which of course means mob rule in the Greek, could get out of control. So I, I don't know that they, uh, that's a different book, uh, whether Jefferson, uh, well maybe not Jefferson, whether Hamilton and the rest Hamilton, of them yeah. uh, uh, were, were aware of Americans, their fellow Americans' specific uh, uh, susceptibility to credulity, but at the time, Edmund Burke, for instance, who was a member of parliament and a great conservative in England, 
warned his fellow members of parliament, these Americans, one thing you got to re realize about them, they take their religion, which used to be our religion too, seriously. And that's why they're revolting. That's why they're rebelling. So it was in the air. One of the peculiar things about Americans was like, they'll believe anything. Um, uh, right, but you said, but then but we also have that counter streak. To right. Get back to that narrative. Right. The counter streak of show me the Missouri show me this, the yes. Yankee practicality, yes. Yankee skepticism. So, so, so that stayed in, in, in uh, you know, when, when, you know, there was always this anti intellectualism and anti elite and anti expertise. That was always an American thing. But when push came to shove, the experts who really knew things worth knowing were allowed to run the show. And, right. and, 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 and we veered back and forth and allowed populist upsurges in many ways. And we allowed all these new religions, as no other country did. We allowed patent medicines that were phony to become the pharmaceutical industry in the 19th century. We allowed all these things. But then we had a, the 20th century comes, and we have the progressive era, and we have and FDA, and, and clean food and drug laws, and... and better journalism. And better journalism, and, oh no, you have to get vaccinated, and that was a Supreme Court case 110 years ago. So, so there, you know, there, it, was, it worked in balance until, in my telling, the 1960s, it went kaput. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Today's conversation features Kurt Anderson and Jeffrey Goldberg. Anderson hosts the award-winning public radio program Studio 360 and regularly contributes to the New York Times and Vanity Fair. His latest book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, comes out next week. Goldberg is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Here's more of their conversation, which took place at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Jeffrey Goldberg. And it went kerplui because of bohemian relativism? What was the, the trigger? I'm not asking you to name a specific right. person or figure or movement, but what was the, the trigger? Well, I would say the untold story that I tell uh, in this book, because we think of the 60s we, we people on the cultural and political left think of the 60s as nothing but good, and it's the it's the right who thinks the 60s are bad. Well, in my telling, because it's it's it is I think an, an important untold story that what what happened in the 60s of oh have your own truth, believe whatever you want. There's no such thing as insanity or psychosis. That's all just a different way of knowing. Alternative facts. Alternative. It's it's alternative facts, well intentioned alternative facts, and feeling is just as important as empirical observation, all those things, which were, in a general sense, of the cultural left. How, how, did, it, how did it happen? I mean, seriously, how did it, it happen? It happened in several ways. Dish? Well, 1962 was a sort of annus mirabilis of counterculture, new age hippiness in so many ways, including, for instance, the Esalen Institute was founded, but so many things. So, so the 60s. No, Esalen, Esalen plays a key role in your book. It's, it's, the headwaters, it's the headwaters of so much of what became new age, what I call because it encompasses a, a thousand denominations, New Age, a and this, this kind of do-your-own-thing relativism, which is always regarded and has been regarded by the cons official cultural conservatives as terrible because it gave rise to the left. My argument, really, is that 
it more importantly, and in our present day, and for the last 20 years or so, has given rise to the extremes and the fantasies and the alternative facts and the conspiracy theories of the right. So are you, are you saying, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not being purposely crude here in my description, but are you saying that, that Kellyanne Conway is a, the inevitable byproduct of the Esalen Institute? Uh, <laughs> the Esalen Institute plus uh, Foucault. Uh, if you right. will, yeah. I mean, yeah, th- that, that Kellyanne Conway, uh, in that family tree are all these people uh, and institutions whose, whose antecedents she would forswear and, and think is part of the terrible elite uh, liberal hegemon that is... Now, the left is not going to like to hear this, that the left, that the left uh, and the, the UBU kind of uh, everything is true if you feel right. it to be true. They're not going to be well received that the left created space uh, that was then occupied by the right. right. Fair to say? I think that's probably fair to say. Okay, good. Yeah. It'll be an exciting book when yeah. it comes out. That's good. Do this progression or do this continuum. Uh, we were talking the other day about this, and I said, I, I, it's almost like a, it's a ridiculous essay assignment, but draw a line from Cotton Mather, right? Because in your telling, um, the pilgrims, who a lot of us of a certain age and older grew up with as the heroes of the American drama, your telling is that they're nuts, um, uh, do Cotton Mather to Donald Trump. Can I tap dance as I do that? And I would like you to juggle fire yeah, while you're okay. doing it, All right. and we'll put some music on. No, but, but there's a line. I mean, the, the, yeah. your book is basically an argument that there's, there's, a, there's a connection between this yeah. and that, and it stops a lot of places along the way. Right. But. I, I mean, in, in that, and, and since you put it that way, I would say Cotton Mather is more the, the, the Karl Rove, the Republican establishment. In fact, the early uh, Puritan in... The, uh, in, the, in the Mathers, Massachusetts Bay Colony that is most modern and Trumpian, if you will, and, and Esselin-y and all the rest, was Anne Hutchinson, who... who do, that, do that round, yeah. Anne Hutchinson, good. who, uh, you know, a year after she got uh, moved to uh, Boston, uh, started preaching herself and, and, and gathering people at her house and, 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 and saying, oh, these guys with university education... Forget it. I feel. I know who's holy. I know who God has touched. I know. So she was opposed to the, the Harvard theologian. She was the, she was the char- first charismatic Christian and the first, and this is really a phrase that's used in Christianity today, pastorpreneur for entrepreneur plus pastor. And so she, and this was a threat. Not easy to say. It is not. Uh, it's, yeah. it's almost as hard as Reince Priebus to say. But, um, <laughs> uh, sh- so she, she uh, started her own sort of alternative church, which for the Mathers and Winthrops and Bradfords of the time wouldn't do, and so they tried her in this most hilarious and hideous and maybe first instance of, no doubt, not the first, instance of mansplaining ever. Her, read the transcript of her trial. It's incredible. And, and in fact, the fact that she was a woman and she was expressing her religious freedom is one of the reasons she's been uh, recounted ever since as a great heroine. Well. She's a nut. She was even nuttier than them. And so they had to say, man, come on. I mean, yes, we believe, some, we believe that this comet means that uh, Jesus is returning tomorrow. But, like, come on. You can't tell us if we're holier, less holy than you. So they banished her. And, uh, no, she, to me, was th- that, her Americanism, was an important thing out of that time. So anyway, you get tolerance of everything. And I talk about the Enlightenment, as you know, and, and we, we think of the Enlightenment as being all about privileging of reason and rationality. Right, the, the primacy of science. And it was that, but it was also the, the 
permit, permitting of every crackpot nutty thing possible. That's, fr that's freedom of thought. Yeah, you can believe anything. And, 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 and rationality and science do not necessarily prevail in that marketplace of ideas. So, and we, we also are a country, uh, as Tocqueville, among others, said early on, like, I've never seen a place where people are so uh, riveted on the making of money. So business is a big part of this story as well. And, and the blue smoke and mirrors that is part of entrepreneurialism that allows for, as I say, patent medicines to run rampant here as they had nowhere else, as they had not in England and Europe, really, to the same degree. Um, we, we made show business uh, a central fact of American life. And in fact, pet medicine shows and were, were right. that, were, were infomercials live uh, in you know, the 1850s and on. Um, uh, so uh, anybody can do anything, and that's great. There was always a tolerance for people believing Correct. unbelievable things. Correct. Oh, P.T. Barnum, before he invented circus, circuses, uh, made his business out of having a mu this great museum in Manhattan. There was a combination of real amazing artifacts and entirely spurious ones, like mermaids and and this the slave woman who supposedly had been who had suckled George Washington and all these things that that people knew kind of sort of weren't true, but it was all fine. And 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 the real was completely mixed up with the spurious as the American uh, cheap tabloid press was being invented, also mixing up the spurious with the real. And uh, we go on and on. We invent Hollywood. We create Disneyland. Uh, we, have, we create more. We, uh, Joseph Smith, whom you mentioned, uh, and I say that in the Book of Mormon, he, he, was, he became the first and greatest uh, author of fan fiction in history. Uh, to Really, to, to create not just, not just extend a, a story of the Bible, but to say, this is the missing third part of the Bible. Extraordinary. You know, Christian science, Pentecostalism, was invented essentially in Topeka and Los Angeles in, 1900, in the early 1900s. That, that, that's a recent American invention. But take us to the most, I don't want to sound judgmental here, but take us to the yeah. most unchristian president we've ever had. Well, exactly. Because it's, it's a non-obvious connection. It is a non-obvious connection because, of course, as, has, as Sinclair Lewis and others have always said, oh, uh, you know, the fascists would appear wrapped in the flag holding the Bible. Well, he, this one, didn't really appear holding the Bible. He is the most unchristian in every sense president we've ever had, even though nominally Protestant. And by the way, he call, he's always called himself a Protestant, which most Protestants I know don't do. You're a Baptist, you're an Episcopalian, Presbyterian, not Protestant. It's like, yeah, are, what are you? I'm a homo sapiens. No, uh, it's weird and, and belies his lack of genuine religiosity, one thing that does. So this unreligious guy, and and so why do they love him, I guess, is your implicit question. And, and, and do that turn, yeah. but, but the step right before that is what parts of the American uh -huh. culture uh -huh. he borrowed oh, yeah. that, that were created by Ann Hutchinson, by Cotton Mather, right. all the way through Joseph Smith, all of the, the Pentecostals, all of these religious, the charismatic right. religious movements, what parts of it did he borrow to create Trumpism, which right. is not a Christian movement? Correct. Uh, well, followed by a lot of devout Christians. And indeed, the before he came along, the Republican Party had become America's first explicitly pan-Christian party. We'd really never had that until the last 20 years of Republicanism. So I would say he, one of the things, in addition to playing on all kinds of, essentially every thread that I 
explored in this book before he was ever running for president, of business hucksterism and, and, and blue smoke and mirrors and snake oil and, and uh, getting away with fibs and lies of all kinds and uh, reinventing yourself several times and reality television and news as entertainment. All these things that were, have been happening and then accelerating for the last 50 years, he you know, depending on either his lizard brain or his genius intellect, decided at a certain point, wow, I really can run for president now, and it's ready for The ground is, the ground ready, is ready for this. In terms of the specific uh, religious thing, I would say that absolute faith of the kind that American Protestants, most American Protestants now practice, absolute faith in factually improbable and impossible things is, is I think, it's, it's going to sound unkind to many, many millions of people's faiths, but nevertheless, there it is. I think if, if, if that is, 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 is central to your way of thinking about life, a kind of disregard for factual reality that this guy represents is going to not seem so disqualifying. But I, we differ on these questions of religion. There are plenty of Christians you know, yeah. even though you live in a certain kind of bubble. I don't. I live in real America. Yeah, right. Northwest Washington, D.C. Yeah. You live in Brooklyn. It's completely different. Uh, the, um, there are plenty of people you know who believe, to use the, the, the Christian shortening, that the tomb was empty, that Jesus yes. rose from the dead. Okay. But, but they, also, they also can identify a Donald Trump lie from a Donald Trump Truth. I mean, so so. But, but you're, what you're doing there, Jeffrey, which I think a lot of would be, oh, can't we all just get along? Oh, that's me. Uh, Quasi seculars, <laughs> even despite your deep religious uh, faith. Uh, I, 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 that that yes, there, there are plenty of versions of Christianity and of Protestantism that are full of true belief in miracles and and supernatural events uh, that happened two thousand years ago that. Fine, fine, if that's your faith and belief. But that is different than believing that within the next 50 years, uh, a certainty that Jesus is returning and it's the end of the world as we know it. That's different than believing you are, when you speak in but, tongues, you're speaking uh, directly from God. That's different from all of these extraordinary things. Um, what I'm arguing is that you could have this teleological understanding where the world is moving to a certain thing where yeah. Jesus is going to come back. Yeah. I mean, Judaism is a messianic religion too, yeah. and the Messiah is going to come. But you can believe that yeah. and also and, and disbelieve right. Right. The, the argument that no one's going to lose their Medicaid yep. if you cut $880 billion yep. Yep. from Medicaid. Right. So, so you can do those two things. You can. You can. And Kierkegaard could do that. You can. And we have Kierkegaard here today to ask yes, us. Right. Bring him on stage. Bring him on, Kierkegaard. Where is um, Kierkegaard? Well, I, I'm Danish, so... You yeah, know, well, you could speak um, to Kierkegaard. Uh, I actually want you to speak but to that, it, I, again, I'm not, this is not a book saying, it's all about Pat Robertson. Or, no. Or, or Cotton Mather. Or religion. That's one part of the thing. So our peculiar form of, of Protestant religion... As that has become much more, it was, the arc was bending toward reason for, for hundreds of years until the last 50 or so. So, but I'm saying that combined with the, the grifters and the grifted, combined with our immersion in entertainment and the turning of everything into entertainment, combined with the, the real true American individualism of I, I know what's true and, it's, and, and I can believe whatever I want. All of these things combined, which worked okay in this great American contraption for many years, uh, finally didn't, and religion was part of that. Well, the internet was a bigger part of it Correct. than religion, no? 
That'll be the next book to decide yeah, which. Yeah, which. Yeah, you'll but, decide but, but I would say our 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 peculiar the internet and the victory of the entertainment industrial complex correct. together as big. Although yes. the internet is international. Today's speakers are Kurt Anderson and Jeffrey Goldberg. Their conversation revolves around Anderson's new book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. They discussed it on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. If you like today's show, check out The Age of Accelerations. It features journalist Thomas Friedman. He says the world has entered an age of dizzying change, and in this episode, he explains how to live in it. Find a link to this companion episode in our show notes or by searching the Aspen Ideas To Go archive on Apple Podcasts. Now, back to our featured conversation. Here's Jeffrey Goldberg. Let me flip this a little bit and talk about the, the, the qualities you're describing in the American character that existed at the very foundation of, of, of this idea. These qualities have positive attributes For sure. as well. I mean, we, in the 20th century, the United States managed to defeat fascism uh, and contain and ultimately defeat communism, right? We did that in part because we believed in something bigger than ourselves, and we also believed that this could be done in a kind of way. Does that come from the same soil as the belief in, 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 in fantastical things? Well, it comes from the same soil because, as I say, when push came to shove, for instance, when the Axis powers were waging war on us, we said, okay, uh, no more America first kowtowing to Hitler. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have to fight this war. So it came from the same land, not the same necessarily you know, combination of nutrients and genes, and, and, and uh, this, a certain set of, of strains kind of overgrew. We didn't, we didn't tend our garden, perhaps, as we should have in the last 50 years. And yes, all, all of this is fantastic. It, I love America. It, it, all of the craziness and the, and the rock and roll, and I can believe anything I want, I can do anything I want, I can go off on a road trip, I can take And acid. the craziness also manifests itself. I'm going to invent a company like Facebook or Google or Intel. Or, 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 or Steve Jobs being the great example of how you know, LSD can lead you to a, to a world-changing, lucrative profession. Uh, so no, the, all those are wonderful parts of America. And, and, and maybe you can't get the Steve Jobs without the Donald Trump. That could be true. And what I'm really doing is describing where we've gotten, not like, oh, God, I wish we were Canada. Sometimes these days, I wish we were Canada. But, but I'm just saying here we are in all of our good, bad, and ugly. Right. How do we restore what you and I would think of as, as the enlightenment value of empirical truth, observable truth? I mean, this is the, it's a, Obviously, it's not even subtext of this current festival. It's the text of, of, of a bunch of people gathered in a mountain on, on mountains in Aspen talking about why do so many people in America seem to believe in fantastical yeah. things in the political realm. I guess the, the larger question, even the one that I'm asking, is are we in a war that we never expected to be in over the Enlightenment? I mean, what... what I, that's an interesting way of putting it, and I, and I, and I think we kind of are, or, or a version of the Enlightenment. Again, I, I read uh, some great uh, books by Enlightenment historians uh, a few years ago um, that really had me thinking differently about the Enlightenment, because the Enlightenment 
also, in addition to producing you and maybe even me, uh, produced in its extreme hypertrophied versions uh, Kellyanne Conway. So um, I, I, I think well, who isn't? I mean, I, I'll state this: who is an adversary of Enlightenment values? In the she, sense that I mean, she's creating, by the way, to borrow from Steve Jobs, the reality distortion field. Yeah. Where where I'm going to say it so often that I'm going to make it right true, and, well, and it becomes true for a large number. And of people. And, and again, I I had never read uh, as you probably have Hannah Arendt's uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism until last year which is worth a read because it gives you goosebumps every fifth page in terms of its, it was written 67 years ago, but uh, uh, I, I'm not saying we're living under a totalitarian state yet, but man, oh man, the, the exact that, the alternative facts and, and how that operates as she describes it having happened in fascist Spain and fascist Germany and, and, and the Soviet Union is amazing. Uh, so. Yeah, so yes, the, enlight- the, the good version of the Enlightenment, that's what we are, I guess, now in a struggle in the, in the most grand sense to preserve. How can we do that? It's just in our own lives. You know, if we believe something on the basis not of facts, like, for instance, that GMOs are going to kill us if we eat them, which the same people who accuse the Republicans of being anti-science for, for denying climate change are fully fully willing to deny science on the question of GMOs, just for instance. So watch it in our own lives. Watch it, you know, uh, you know maybe don't tell the stranger uh, who's talking about how, you know, George Soros is going to steal his Camaro or something, uh, that he's a nut. But tell your brother-in-law who says that three million illegals voted in the last election uh, for Hillary Clinton, tell him he's wrong and show him the facts. So, I mean... What can you do? I don't know that it can be turned back. I don't know that, I don't know that we're going to go back to the way it was back when reality-based community wasn't a phrase or a joke. But all we can do is what we can do in our own, in our own spheres. You would argue that these anti-enlightenment values, I mean, you, you allude to the GMO issue. Yeah. How susceptible is the secular left to this kind of fantastical thinking? I mean, obviously, you root it in the 60s in some yeah. way. But how, how, if you're looking, looking across the American political landscape, um, uh, who's suffering more well, at the moment? Suffering more from, from the derangement of family. The derangement, this derangement syndrome. Well, they're right. It's, it's, a, it's highly asymmetrical. Yes, you've got the GMO thing even more. You've got vaccine. You, and the anti-vaccine movement, which, interestingly, although began more as a left thing, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was its, and is, its great poster boy, it has become more of a right thing. Um, um, so, but, so everybody, everybody is susceptible to it. I mean, uh, I, you know, everybody is susceptible to, to, to believing, to confirmation bias and believing conspiracy theories that almost certainly aren't true because it, it conforms with their beliefs. Everybody is susceptible. They have motivated reasoning. They, 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 they make up reasons to prove things. Right. As, speaking of Cotton Mather, like, oh, I think the Indians are about to, are, are, the, are the agents of Satan and they're about to try to kill us. Look, that root, it's shaped just like an Indian club. Let's go kill them. I mean, literally, so motivated reasoning, yes, from, from the beginning to now. So yes, everybody is susceptible to it. For a variety of reasons, for instance, the fact that the John Birch Society started in 1958 uh, was, was pumping out the alternative facts conspiracism of an incredible and hysterical kind, basically as Joseph McCarthy's heir, uh, for generations to the, to the Republican right, first to the fringe and then to the 
a little farther in and, and now to its mainstream. That being one reason, among others, that I think uh, while everybody is susceptible to it, and even you or I perhaps, but that it is it has it has borne itself out as a as a as a danger and as an emergency uh, and as maybe the end uh, on the right. You're listening to Aspen Ideas to Go. On the show today, Fantasyland: How America Went Haywire, featuring Kurt Anderson and Jeffrey Goldberg. Find Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Google Play, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. Our episodes take onstage discussions and package them into an entertaining hour of relevant information. You won't want to miss a single episode. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts. Now back to the show. Here's Jeffrey Goldberg. Do we need more intolerance in our society? You know, I mean, I don't say that in those words, but yeah, we do need less squishiness of a certain kind that I think we have uh, indulged since the 60s of, uh, oh, well, you know, that that, that you can no longer, or that it's harder for people to stigmatize uh, crazy falsehoods than it used to be in the interest of inclusiveness and you know, academia did have a big role in this, and particularly the kind of, in the anthropology departments in the 60s, start, when they started to say, you cannot say, you cannot believe that what this tribes person uh, believes about how the world was created is untrue. That's just a different way of You hear people on the left today saying that we can't, in the academic left certainly, saying we can't judge people who practice female genital mutilation right. because that's their culture. Right. Right. But well, we can shout down a speaker at, at Bennington College right. or Middlebury or wherever. Right. Do you think that democracy, a democracy based on reasonable discourse and fact, can we survive social media? Can we survive the flattening of the information ecosystem? I don't know the answer to that. I, I think, I mean, in, in a whole other conversation about, oh, are, are robots going to take over? Will there be jobs for people? No, we've had industrial revolutions before. It's always worked out in the past. Maybe, maybe not. I think this is a similar kind of question. I don't know. Sometimes I think that the, the, the internet and the rest of the telecommunications infrastructure that has been built out in the last uh, 50 years, and especially the last 25, is a, is a new condition from which we cannot easily recover uh, in terms of what the, exactly the thing you're saying, a, a discourse based on facts uh, rather than facts and opinions rather than just opinion. I mean, 25 years ago, you're a magazine editor. I'm working for you. You're, you're functioning in the pre-internet era as a, a filtration system. Yes. Right? I mean, people gatekeeper. Come, you're a gatekeeper. People were knocking the gatekeepers, uh, and we were obviously flawed in our gatekeeping. I mean, we and we were all white guys, and we were, we were complacent, and all the, all, the, all the things, everything that can be said bad about gate, the, the old-fashioned establishment gatekeepers, yeah, true. Would you have Facebook and Google play gatekeeping roles today, or is that I don't, opening up another Pandora well, box? Well, you know, I mean, I think we need, I, I won't presume now to prescribe the, the rebuilt gates that we need, but uh, we need some of them. I mean, our, our host, Walter Isaacson, wrote a very interesting piece in your magazine, The Atlantic, uh, about how at a deep 
technical level, we can do some things in terms of how the internet works and, and anonymity is or isn't permitted. So there are things to do, and I, again, I'm not, I don't know enough to know all of the little ways uh, that, that we can address this, um, and there, I don't think there's any silver bullet, and I don't know, and, and secession or d- dissolution into two countries is very difficult because it's no longer, of course, South versus North, but cities versus everybody else. The, the, the interesting, many interesting aspects of your book, but one of the interesting things that I, I learned is that, is that you can't just blame social media and this flattening. You have to blame also, in the American context, the credulity that you, that the history of credulity, which is this book, you have to blame our predisposition to believe things that aren't proven. And that's a much, that's going to be much harder to right. reverse given the long cultural antecedents uh, right. than algorithm fixes Correct. in Google. Correct. That, that, that we have been getting here for a long time. And, and, and Donald, it didn't just start in 2015 when Donald Trump... Did you, you've been writing about Donald Trump for 30 years. Did you ever imagine that he could be president of the United States? Of course, I knew it then. No, of course I didn't. No, 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 no. I'm not asking did you predict Donald Trump no. would become president by beating Hillary Clinton. Right. I'm asking you, I'm asking you, as you're doing the book before Trump oh. plausible, did you see an opportunity for reality TV to become reality? Well, you know, the whole book was how it has, all the ways in which it has, some of them benign, like our mutual love of Main Street USA at Disneyland and Disney World, some of them less benign. Um, So I didn't jump to, and Donald Trump, you know, as I started this book in 2014, no, Donald Trump didn't appear in the book for the first year I was writing it. But then he came along and embodied every single thing except uh, a pious, devout Christianity that I was writing about. So, uh, no, but, but I went, aha, when he came along and, and woke up one day and after he'd won a couple of primaries and said to my wife, like, if he gets the nomination, this could be good for this book. Um, 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 uh, uh, and so be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Um, Hucksterism, there you go. Yeah, you get exactly. the sale. It's always about the sale. Uh, I think there are mics, uh, people with mics, and if you raise your hand, there's somebody in the back right there. I do see a hand. Um, Kurt, I, I have a question. You seem to be saying that there's a line from Esalen to, say, Kellyanne Conway and the religious belief in trickle-down economics. Whereas it seems like it might be more graceful to say that those two things both spring from the same well independently. And Jeff seems to have been trying to get at this line, and I didn't quite get it. How would you go from the hippie 60s to the very culturally different set of people today on the right and their lack of interest in facts. I just can't see okay. the line of influence. It's a good question. And that's why there's a book. It's a very good question. And for instance, I would say that the simplest answer to that question is that what began as, as hippie things and, 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 this, and this small countercultural set of values and beliefs from 1962 to 1969 or whatever uh, diffused, filtered out into the whole country. So whether they know it or not, uh, you know, and, and my, my Republican, conservative Republican parents became like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, that's what he believes, yeah, sure. And my mother started talking to her plants because a book that came out in 1973 told her to talk to her plants. So, and she, and she was an absolute rationalist and, 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 and a non-believer in religion. So 
It, 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 it was not, it, what, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas, what happened in the 60s didn't stay in the 60s, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and, and it became a way uh, of thinking that, that affected everything. And again, it's just one stream. Uh, as I explained in the book, at the, the, so the 60s, we, we have the, the Woodstock idea of the 60s in all of our heads. That's the canonical 60s. What also happened in the 60s, of course, was simultaneously and, and, and in its own mind as a, as a backlash to the hippie 60s was the, the new extremism and new unreasonableness of uh, Protestant Christianity. Uh, it, 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 it wasn't, and it wasn't just a backlash. You, you look at the timelines, and it was happening simultaneously. So, yet to your point, I think they were from the same stream, but they were both highly important in their own ways at, at getting where we are. They thought they were the opposite, but they were hippies and Pat Robertson, let's say, yes. Uh, born of the same American tradition, and, and here we and are. Intolerance for having your own truth. Intolerance for, for your own truth and feeling and, and intuition being privileged over scientific observation, empirical reality. Yeah. You think our politicians should be, in an ideal world, less, to- less respectful toward religion? Uh, I wouldn't say that exactly. I, I, I would say that, um, you know, the. the, the uh, the constitutional prohibition on having religious tests for public office is only theoretically true. That you know the fact that there is one declared non-believer in the Congress in the 535 members of the United States Congress tells you something about uh, uh, religious freedom in this right. country. So less respect, no. Uh, less pandering, uh, uh, less more understanding of the division between religion and, and the state that Thomas Jefferson and the founders thought was so important? For sure. Uh, I don't know where the mic is. Over here, yes. The nature of the dialogue has caused me a question. You know, why is it that Donald Trump is a snake oil salesman? The best salesperson for a fantastical view of the future in my lifetime was Barack Obama. And he beat Hillary Clinton on a fantastical view of the future nine years ago that I sat in this room and listened to people talk about as if it were actually possible to increase entitlements and, and balance the budget to have health care for everybody but not have to pay for it, to have an environment that we didn't have to make compromises in order to accomplish, to increase entitlements while balancing the budget. This was the platform that he ran on, and it was as fantastical then as anything that Donald Trump has said. I just think you like that fantasy better. No, no, well, I, 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 interestingly put, but uh, first of all, uh, other than you can keep your doctor, Tell me a lie, a falsehood of, of the sort that Donald Trump emits every day. All right, sir, let, let, let Kurt. We're not having no, a dialogue I, you know, about whether I, Donald I, Trump and, is a... No, and again, I mean, the book is not about Donald Trump. There's a half a chapter about Donald Trump. It's not really about politics. It's about a way of thinking. And if we can meet on the common ground of, of too much fantastical thinking is bad, I'll shake your hand, and that's a common ground. Um, ma'am, yes, please. What did the role of the pill put into the 60s in your concepts? Oh, right. Well, we're going to go all kinds of different directions. I, I have no problem with the pill. Um, uh, I have no problem with civil rights. Anderson endorses pill. I have no problem with civil rights. I'm no breaking at Aspen. The 60s had many. Uh, however, I do 
in, in my idea... comes out against pill. Stand by. <laughs> I do have a little digressive thing, because what I, one of the things I talk about in the 60s, it's a subtler thing that's not suitable to the caricature jocularity of Jeff uh, uh, Goldberg, is, is the way in which we... I'm just we, trying to decompress from the previous kind of the question. Way, right? The way in which uh, Americans are, have an inclination to fictionalize themselves from the pilgrims on. And, and I do think, actually, the pill was an enabler of freedom, obviously, for women and for people who wanted to have sex more than they could before, all that. But I do, I do think, actually, to the degree the pill allowed uh, more sex with uh, people whom you weren't, you know, who, who you could regard more as you would regard somebody in a movie or somebody in a novel, like, hey, I'll, sure. Uh, uh, I think it, it, it was... It's not a major part of my argument, or even a minor part of my argument, but it, but it, but I think the, the 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 sexual revolution that the pill enabled was also about uh, uh, enabled a, a kind of fictionalization of sex without of heterosexual sex. Let us stipulate with uh, without regard for what had uh, earlier been, along with disease, its greatest downside, which is children. Um, um, I love my children. They made my life possible. But if I'd had a child every time I had sex, it would be a problem. <laughs> Wouldn't it? I'm not even. Uh, I'm not. She asked. No, it's fine. It's fine. We're just going to move on. Is there, you have a, yeah. I was wondering uh, your thoughts on the future uh, of the United States and the world. <laughs> Prediction. Wait, wait, let's, let's stay on the Based pill on for a minute. Experience, you know, what, are, what are some key aspects? For the future. Yeah. Do you do you mean do you mean are we are we in a period of decline based on the theory that he's proposing? I mean, you know, I, I have I have never been a declinist. I have always been a 51 percent optimist about the American project. Um, uh, thinking about these things and spending three or four years writing this book has gotten me closer to be to pessimistic than I have ever been in my life. I would say that. Uh, and again, I mean. Leaving Donald Trump aside, who was aside as I was thinking about this history of America, um, you know, we may have reached our imperial sell-by date as empires do. I don't know. We'll see. I'm hopeful not. I'm hopeful that you know we've got uh, some hundreds more years in it. But then I look back, you know, at at ancient Greece, for instance, uh, and ancient Greece. When we think of the great ancient Greece that we love and all Euripides and all the great names and the magnificent beginning of Western culture, it only was a couple hundred years. There was, there was superstition and astrology and alchemy before and after, and it was just like whoop, and uh, this, 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 this period of, in antiquity of, of extraordinary art and thought and science. And, you know, are we at the end of our classical period? Maybe. And, uh, uh, you know, we surely are given the rise of China uh, at the end of our unipolar political, cultural, economic dominance. So I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, uh, I am less hopeful than I used to be, but um, uh, I am not uh, ready to kill myself. Yet. And on that note, thank you very much, Kurt. This is very interesting. Thank you to all of you. Kurt Anderson has written three novels and several nonfiction books, including his latest, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire. It comes out next week. Jeffrey Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Atlantic.
Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Explore thousands of videos from the festival on our website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.